Today's scripture reading is from James 3, 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks again, Sarah Catherine. Good morning, everybody. Happy Palm Sunday to you. And uh, for many of you, happy spring break. Some of you are uh, uh, just coming home from spring break. Some of you are about to head out to spring break, uh, depending on uh, where the schools are. And uh, we're just grateful that you're here this morning. Palm Sunday is uh, the beginning of what Christians for a century have referred to as Holy Week. And uh, part of that week, uh, of course, as, as Pastor Casey has already mentioned, uh, will include for us uh, an all-CPC, that means central and in-town locations, coming together right here in this room uh, for a Good Friday service this coming Friday, 6.30 p.m., and then Easter and all the services and celebrations around that. So hope that, that you can be here, uh, and especially hope that, that, that you might even think to invite a friend who does not have a church home. Uh, it's a great, uh, great Sunday of the year to, to uh, expose people to the life giving vitality of Jesus in and through a community. So uh, we're making room for your friends as well as for you. So uh, look forward to the the coming weekend. But for now, we're continuing in our series in James. And James is known as uh, New Testament wisdom literature. It it is sort of the uh, New Testament expression of the Old Testament wisdom literature which would include books like Job, the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, uh, and Song of Solomon. And uh, when we talk about wisdom in this context, we're talking about what, what James refers to as wisdom from above. Wisdom, in other words, that comes from God, which is the kind of wisdom that seeks to think and see in a similar way that God does, and then reorient our thoughts, our words, and the trajectory of our entire lives in the direction of that wisdom that comes to us fundamentally and primarily through the Scriptures themselves. Wisdom is the acknowledgement of what Isaiah the prophet said hundreds of years ago when he said that God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts and God's ways are higher than our ways. And, and so what that suggests for those of us who are seeking wisdom is that when God's thoughts contradict our thoughts, our feelings, our instincts, and our culture, wisdom in that scenario will defer to God. Foolishness will defer to our thoughts, feelings, instincts, and culture. So relationship with God is a lot like a relationship with a nutritionist or uh, a, uh, a trainer. 
If you want your body to be healthy, oftentimes you will have to listen to the wisdom of the nutritionist and or the trainer to confront protests that come to you from your unhealthy body. Those protests when your, when your lungs and your legs say, we cannot do that. Or when your taste buds say, we cannot eat that. Wisdom defers to whatever the nutritionist and whatever the, uh, the trainers say. And you confront the protests of an unhealthy body, just like true wisdom confronts the protests of an unhealthy soul. And so there is essentially a three-part thought process that James takes us through uh, in the acquisition of wisdom, which, which has a lot to do with this thing that he calls meekness. And so to, to move in the direction of meekness and wisdom, there's a sin to repent of, there is a virtue to feed, and then there is a jealousy to behold. So let's start with the sin to repent of. It's in verse 14, and it's a sin that sometimes you can see and sometimes you can't from the outside because it's a sin of the heart. It's the sin that James refers to as not only jealousy, but bitter jealousy. So I'm going to interact with, with a number of comedians uh, in this sermon, uh, more so than, than, than usual, uh, partly because I think comedians, good comedians, have this uncanny ability to take a very, very serious and heavy thing and to communicate the truth about life in a way that we can actually absorb and receive, even as we deal with those heavy things. So Jeff Foxworthy, who is well known in the South, once said, I have never been jealous, not even when my dad finished fifth grade a year before I did. So jealousy is a very sick problem of the human condition. Because jealousy is comforted when other people experience failure, disappointment, and loss. And jealousy is bothered when other people experience success and good fortune. In other words, jealousy mourns and grieves because of those who rejoice, and rejoices because of those who mourn and grieve. It's incredibly narcissistic because with jealousy, other people's stories become less about them and more about us and how their stories reflect on us according to us. At the core, jealousy is a form of self-centeredness, a form of narcissism, a form of pride. And so James unpacks what jealousy looks like, some warning signs, some indicators. One is ambition. Ambition, according to James' use of the word, comes from a place of inferiority that is always looking up the ladder with a desire for more and better. 1 Samuel 18 is one of the most tragic pictures of jealousy. It comes right on the heels of that famous story when the young uh, shepherd boy David slays the Philistine giant 
Goliath, and, and, and in so doing, rescues all of Israel and, and, and rescues King Saul, who is the king of Israel. And after David defeats Goliath, in the next chapter, in 1 Samuel 18, it says that the women of Israel break out into a song. And here are the lyrics. Saul has slain thousands. So far, so good if you're Saul, right? And then the next line, David has slain tens of thousands. And it says from that point forward, because that saying made Saul, the king, feel bitter, it says that from that point forward, he kept a jealous eye on David and and became aggressive toward David, wanted him out of the picture because of this he but me thing that was going on in his mind and in his heart. Now, if you take the first lyric, Saul has slain his thousands, that's actually high praise. That's a statement that says, Saul is a mighty warrior, one man taking down thousands. But just as Gary Allen once said, you can be the moon and still be jealous of the stars. And that's what's happening with Saul. C.S. Lewis interacts with this thought in mere Christianity when he talks about pride, which is just a form of jealousy. He says pride is essentially competitive. It gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. It's the pleasure of being above all the rest. And this pleasure of being above all the rest, as in the case of King Saul, also comes with the misery of being beneath anyone, of being number two instead of being number one in the eyes of others. So, ambition from a place of inferiority that looks up the ladder, but then there's boasting, which comes from a place of superiority that looks down the ladder, that seeks to medicate a swollen, inflamed ego by putting other people down, by belittling other people, by disdaining other people. So another comedian, George Carlin, uh, the late George Carlin, had this, um, this uh, little uh, comedy short about road rage. And he said, we all, as we get on the road and, and are driving our cars, we have two kinds of drivers that are confronting us all the time. They're the idiots, who are the people who go slower than we do. And then they're the maniacs, who are the people that go faster than we do. And in every instance, the basis for judging all other drivers is us. Because apparently, according to us, we're the standard of righteousness for driving. But what Carlin goes on to say is that what we don't realize in this scenario is that to each and every one of our idiots, we're the maniac, and to each and every one of our maniacs, we're the idiots. We're just blinded to it. And then the third is the affliction and the sin, especially of the privileged and of the affluent, and it is the absence of gratitude or negativity or cynicism. So Louis C.K., Another comedian did this uh, talk show interview. I think it was Conan O'Brien. I can't, I can't remember exactly when. But I'll never forget watching the interview. Uh, it was such an impactful interview that they, they actually gave a title to it. And the title is, Everything's Amazing 
and nobody's happy. And what Louis C.K. You know, spoke about in this, this talk show interview was how the very, very small sliver of human beings who actually can afford to fly on an airplane, what do we do? We complain about the time that we have to sit on the runway. And to this, Louis C.K. says, I want to say, oh, really? You're complaining about a runway. Well, what happened next? Did you fly through the air incredibly like a bird? Did you partake in the miracle of human flight? Everybody on every plane should just constantly be going, oh, wow, you're sitting in a chair in the sky. (laughs) But we lose the wonder. Complaining because we have an iPhone 5, because the iPhone 5 is not an iPhone 6. And everybody knows that the iPhone 6 takes better pictures than the iPhone 5. Do you remember when we were first introduced to the cell phone? Do you remember the movie Wall Street with Michael Douglas walking on the beach with that thing that looked like a toaster oven with a fishing pole attached to it? And he had to have a backpack to put it in when he wasn't talking on it? And we all watched that in wonder, saying, oh my goodness, do those things really exist? I wonder if I will ever be part of that upper echelon of humanity that will get to have one of those or at least get to make a call on one of them. And now we moan and groan about a computer that fits in our pocket and holds 10,000 songs and enables us to connect immediately with anybody in, in any part of the world just about. But we find a reason to get negative and cynical about it. We get negative and cynical about our financial position, forgetting the fact that over 50% of the world's population survives on less than $2.50 a day. And we're complaining more than that 50%. New York Times did a piece, I think Nicholas Kristof was, was the writer and research for this one, And in that piece, Christoph says that the United States of America has been the most affluent, privileged country on the face of the earth for decades running, and currently ranks as the 23rd happiest nation in the world. Most affluent, 23rd happiest. We've lost the wonder. We've lost the wonder that the Puritan, the the anonymous Puritan that other Puritans wrote about, who was reduced to zero possessions except the clothing on his back and a piece of bread and a glass of water in front of him, and he looks at the bread and he looks at the water and he says, oh my goodness, unbelievable, all of this, and Jesus Christ too. The reason why we lose the wonder is we think we're entitled. The reason why we lose the wonder is we think that somehow we deserve blessings. The reason we're entitled is is that we somehow think that that everything that we have, we have achieved and earned and, and made for ourselves, completely forgetting the fact that we were born in privilege, that we were born with the opportunity that got us where we are. Yeah, hard work had something to do with it, but that hard work would have led to nowhere Have we not been born in the conditions that fed us three meals a day, gave us options every morning when we decided what to put on for clothing, 
and a roof over our head and everything else that over half of the world's population does not have. We have, three mil- we have three meals a day. Many, many millions of people in the world have three meals a week, maybe, and complain less, apparently, according to the research, than we do because we have somehow lost the wonder of it all. James says in verse 15 that ambition, boasting, the absence of gratitude among the privileged is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Strong words from the half-brother of Jesus. Jonathan Edwards unpacked this statement a bit, and, and, and Edwards wrote about how jealousy actually began with the most beautiful angel in heaven, Lucifer, because heaven was not enough for him. Edwards says that Lucifer was among the most beautiful angels, and then he had a thought, I'm number two. And that's a problem. And then Adam and Eve in the garden of God's delight, in the garden of paradise, had the same thought, we're number two. It's not enough to be with God and to be loved by God. We need to be like God. So James is saying, never underestimate the power of jealousy. In verse 16, he says, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Jealousy made heaven not enough. Jealousy turned Lucifer into the Satan, the most beautiful angel in heaven, into the devil. Jealousy turned Adam and Eve into sinners who destroyed the universe. Theodore Roosevelt once said that comparison is the thief of joy, but but that may actually be the understatement of history because it's comparison, it's jealousy that has vandalized peace. It has vandalized the shalom, the flourishing with which God created his creation, people, places, and things to thrive. So the way that we, we repent of this sin of jealousy is by feeding other virtues. Verse 17, he talks about the wisdom that's from above, which is characterized by meekness. There's that word again. It's pure, it's peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, sincere, righteous, and peaceful. In other words, it's characteristic of the kind of person that you want to be your friend. It's characteristic of the the kind of person that you want to be your neighbor or your boss or working for you or working alongside of you. It's It's the kind of things that you want people to say about you at your funeral. Nobody's going to be talking or caring about how you spent extra hours at the office earning huge bonuses. When it's all boiled down to the eulogy, all people care about is character. Jim Collins uh, wrote this very, very, you know, well-known, best-selling business book called Good to Great, and I know a lot of you have read it and applied it in your own sort of leadership positions, those of you who are leaders. And he talks in Good to Great about the level five leader. He calls it the level five leader. 
And he says that organizations, and this is through extensive research, organizations and companies that have had sustained improvement and growth, growth over a period of 15 years, the vast majority of them have one thing in common, a humble chief executive officer who Collins describes as quiet, humble, modest, reserved, shy, gracious, mild-mannered, self-effacing, understated, doesn't believe their own press, a paradoxical blend of personal humility and professional will. What he's describing is an ego that's not inflated or infected, but that is nonetheless emotionally full. Meek people are the strongest people. It's not the bravado people and the boastful people who are the strongest people in the world, and that's what ancient Greece said. It's, it's, it's the people with bravado that are the examples to look up to, and humility is a vice, not a virtue. Actually, Christianity reverses it like Christianity reverses, reverses so many other things. What James is talking about here when he's talking about weakness or meekness is not, not weakness, but the greatest kind of strength, because what it is is a, a confidence coupled with, with not a shred of self-importance. Confidence sans self-importance. Could you imagine? This person that James is describing is more interested in you than they are interested in getting you to be interested in them. This person, when you're with them, you sense that you're important to them, that they like you, that they are paying attention to you. What humble, meek people remind us of is this, that the human ego is a lot like the big toe. You know there's something wrong with it only when you find yourself drawing attention to it. How many people do you know or have you experienced walking into a party or into a room like this or, or, or walking behind a microphone and celebrating and, 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 and looking for high fives as they said, my toes feel terrific. Can I get a high five? I mean, nobody's done that, right? Nobody in their right mind anyway. Unless their toes have been injured for a sustained period of time. You draw attention to your big toe only if it's inflated and infected. And you know your toe is healthy when you're not preoccupied with it or thinking about it at all. So it is with the human ego. You know it's healthy when you're not preoccupied with it. You know, C.S. Lewis said that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And there's a, there's a, a beautiful irony to this because it's the people who don't run around trying to draw attention to themselves who actually end up getting the attention. It's the people who don't run around demanding respect and getting their feelings hurt and feeling slighted by the smallest little thing all the time. It's the people who don't demand respect that end up being respected more than anybody else. It's the people 
who don't desperately seek friends that end up having the most friends. See, because respect, honor, positive attention, these are things that are not directly sought. These are things that are byproducts, not goals, but byproducts of meekness, of Character qualities that are pure and peaceable and gentle and open to reason and full of mercy and good fruit and impartial and sincere and righteous and peaceful. So how do we get on this track? How do we, how do we put the wheels on the rails of this track? There's a final piece to it that's an essential piece, and that's a jealousy to behold. To take our eyes off of ourselves, we have to put our eyes elsewhere. And where we need to put our eyes, according to James, is upon the jealousy of God. And, and we may be thinking, oh, no, the preacher, he's, he's contradicting himself. Yeah, but there are two kinds of jealousy that the Scriptures talk about. Remember, in verse 14, James is referring to bitter jealousy. But the wisdom that comes from above is associated with a different kind of jealousy. You know, Exodus 34, 14 says this, you shall not worship any other God, for the Lord your God is a jealous God. And, and a superficial reading might compel us to ask, well, is God himself being hypocritical? Is he narcissistic? Does he have a fragile and weak and wounded ego that, that he needs to create people to praise him with? Is he insecure? Here's the difference. We, like King Saul, are jealous of people. God is jealous for people. Jealous of and jealous for are two very, very different things. One is self-centered, one is other-centered. One takes, the other gives away. How do we kill the impulse toward ambition, boasting, and the absence of gratitude among the privileged? It's by looking to Jesus, who is jealous for us always, and, 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 and jealous of us never. I'll go back to you, Jonathan Edwards. This is a bit of an adaptation of an excerpt uh, from one of his writings that, that I picked up from a commentary, and this sums it all up. Jesus is the polar opposite of envy. Jesus Christ loves to see us get more and better than we deserve, so much so that he is willing to suffer to make sure that we do. We look at people and say, look at that person. That person doesn't deserve such success and good fortune. Isn't that horrible? Jesus looks at us and says, look at that person. That person doesn't deserve such grace and love and blessing. Isn't that wonderful? Like Lucifer, Jesus fell from heaven, but for entirely different reasons. Lucifer fell because, like King Saul, he could not bear the thought of being number two. He could not bear the thought of sharing attention and glory. Jesus fell from heaven, but voluntarily, because he could not bear the thought of being number one and only. Jesus made himself nothing in order to turn us into a something. He made himself nobody so that we could be a somebody. Doesn't this make ambition, boasting, and the absence of gratitude among the privilege seem incredibly juvenile and silly? God have mercy on us. 
Will we consider Jesus? Will we behold his jealousy for us? As the meek and humble one, will we be happy with heaven? Will paradise be enough for us? This table helps us to confront these questions because what this table is, is a foretaste of heaven. It's a foretaste of the paradise for which we have been created. Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, becoming obedient even to death on a cross, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you believe that? If you do, this table is for you. All are invited who've been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit into a church where the gospel is believed and embraced. And if your desire and intention is to renounce sin and to follow Jesus, this table is for you. It's not a table for good people. It's a table for people who have received grace. If these things don't describe you, then there are are other opportunities to observe, to consider. I want to also encourage us all to take these next moments, especially at times where we're not around the table, to either interact with God on a personal level or interact with each other. Feel free to mill around the room if you want, just to encourage somebody or or to seek encouragement from somebody. This is a time to pass the peace. It's a family Thanksgiving meal that we get to have every week around Jesus as a foretaste of heaven and paradise.